The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and stocks are heading for their fifth straight down week with some modest moves today. Obviously, the Russia-Ukraine war weighing on markets, but so is the Fed. A rate hike cycle set to start on Wednesday as inflation is spiking. We'll look at if the economy is ready. And as oil spiked to $130 a barrel, it showed two things. It would be great to have alternative energy sources, but we're not fully there yet. So what can we do in the meantime? We'll ask the president of distributor SoCal Gas. Plus, the SEC's crackdown is crushing China stocks. The big ETF covering Chinese Internet has lost three quarters of its value in little more than a year. Is COVID also now weighing on Chinese markets? We'll explore that with the man who runs the K-Web ETF. But first, let's get to Dom Chu with our market numbers to close out the week. Dominic. All right. So that Chinese Internet weakness, big tech weakness, is partly behind what has been the underperforming trade in the Nasdaq so far today. So from a major indices perspective, we do see the Dow Industrials clinging on to some gains here, up one-tenth of one percent. 33,220 the last trade there. The S&P is down uh, nearly one half of 1%, about 16 points to the downside, 42.43 the last trade there. And the NASDAQ composite, the underperformer down a little over 1% right now, 150 points to the downside, now below 13,000, 12.980 at the highs of the session. We were actually up 110 points at the lows, down 184, just to give you an idea of where the range has been so far today in the underperforming NASDAQ. Now, with regard to the week that was here in terms of sectors, maybe no surprise that energy continues to be a focal point for many parts of this market. Energy was the best performing S&P 500 sector. Materials, though, half a point to the downside. Overall, the second best performer thanks in large part to real outperformance in fertilizer makers in particular. Look at CF Industries, look at Mosaic. That's helping to power that materials gain. And then on the underside of things, the consumer staples trade, the worst performer down 5%. Crude oil, very much a focus. Kelly mentioned $130. It was like $130.50. That was the high that we saw just four days ago, meaning at these levels, $108 were down roughly 16 17% in just four trading sessions. But after two big days worth of declines, we are seeing a rebound today. That real-time pricing of tensions between Ukraine and Russia still playing out very much so, Kelly, in that oil trade. Right now, WTI, $180.40. Back over to you. 108 Dom, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Now, it's been a really busy week for data, and everyone's talking about the CPI, but there are a few other key reports to mention. And I'm not going to say the word stagflation just yet, but that's the specter that's starting to hover over markets, especially after Goldman downgraded their GDP forecast last night. So let's start with the data we got just this morning. It's all going in the bad category. Consumer sentiment dropped. We're talking about the lowest level since 2011. Consumer expectations, their future uh, sort of outlook for the economy, a favorite gauge of investors, that also dropped to about a decade low. Now, even worse, and sure to frustrate the Fed, inflation expectations in that survey surged. They went the wrong way. Here it is. Consumers' one-year inflation expectations jumped to 5.4% after a slight drop the last reading. This is the absolute last thing the Fed wants to see right now as they try to avoid the psychology that could drive a wage price spiral. Of course, CPI, we know where this one's going. 7.9% this week. That's a 40-year high. 
The one bright spot in the data only highlights the conundrum. Jolts, the job openings report, revised to show a new record high of openings in December, 11 and a half million. Mm, can't really put it fully in that category. The problem, this is the biggest jobs workers gap in U.S. post-war history. And that, Goldman says, is going to keep upward pressure on wages well into next year. Means upward pressure on inflation as well. So with all of that said, joining me now to discuss is PNC chief economist Gus Fauché. Gus, it's great to have you here today. What do you expect the Fed to do about this conundrum it's facing? Well, we'll see the Fed raise the Fed funds rate next Wednesday by a quarter of a percentage point, and then they'll continue to raise it throughout 2022 in an effort to cool off growth and in, in curb inflation. Uh, they're going to be gradual. They're going to be steady. But certainly, I think the risks are to the upside with the Fed funds rate. Uh, if inflation stays higher because of high energy prices, then the Fed will need to raise more aggressively. Gus, let me pick up on that point about how aggressively the Fed needs to tighten, because I think what we're trying to illustrate with the data coming in here is there's so much going on between the actual inflation readings, the psychology that's now building up, that they have to be really careful. I think Stephanie Link put it really well last hour when she said even if they hike five or seven times this year, that's not going to solve the inflation problem. Well, no, not in and of itself, but we are going to get slower inflation because of things like uh, eventually the crisis in Ukraine will come to an end and we'll start to see energy prices decline again. Um, part of the thing that's boosting measured inflation now is comparisons with early 2021 when prices were low coming out of the pandemic. That's going to fade from the data. So it's going to be a combination of Fed tightening, uh, a gradual uh, resumption of normal activity with the you know, presumably some sort of um, stall in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and, and then the Fed raising rates in an effort to cool off growth. In between all of those factors, we should see substantially lower inflation at the end of this year and then again in, in 2023. Sure, no one's saying we're going to still be at 7%, but even if we're at 3 or 4% at the end of this year, if we're at 3 or 4% well into next year, which is what the wages and everything is kind of pointing to, that's still a problem, isn't it? I, not if inflation is slowing. I mean, I don't think we should expect that inflation is going to fall from 8% in early 2022 to 2% by the end of this year. I think that's a recipe for disaster. But I think if inflation is heading in the right direction, if we see energy prices starting to come down, if we see some of that uh, tightness in the labor market dissipating somewhat, then the Fed is moving in the right direction. And I'm pretty confident that the Fed has the tools to get inflation to 2%. It may take a couple of years. Uh, but I think that the Fed knows what they're doing. They have the tools to do so. So you basically don't think it's that big of a deal if inflation is in the three to four percent range for a couple more years? Um, I wouldn't say a couple more years. If it's three or four percent at the end of 2023, I'm a little bit more concerned. But if it's at three or four percent at the end of this year and slowing and going to move lower in 2023, then I think that's OK. I mean, don't forget, we had a period coming out of the last recession where we had inflation well below two percent. So um, I, I think the Fed knows what they're doing and they don't want to cool off inflation too quickly because that can push the economy into recession. Final comment, what is your GDP outlook at this point with everything that the economy is now uh, dealing with in terms of supply chain and cost spikes? You know, we'll see real GDP growth this year of between two and a half and three percent. That's a good solid number that's above the economy's long term average. And then we will see slower growth in 2023 as some of that Fed tightening starts to, to bite on growth a little bit more. But I think we will see a gradual slowing in growth 
growth this year towards a more sustainable long run pace. All right. It all. So you're you're telling everything's going to be fine. No one needs it, the Fed needs some, to just chill. Investors need to chill. Growth is going to be fine. Inflation's going to be fine. I hope you're right. It, it's going to be bumpy, but I think the Fed knows what they're doing. All right, Gus, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Gus Fauché with PNC. Meantime, the invasion of Ukraine has sent prices haywire across the commodity complex, especially nickel prices, whose massive surge has resulted in canceled trades and closed markets. Now other platforms are raising margin requirements and trying to prevent a repeat. Let's get to Bob Bassani with more on the fallout. Bob? You know, this has been a real week of upheaval for traders, Kelly. Uh, In two trading sessions this week, I'll just give you an example. Brent crude futures have swung by the most on record. We saw swings of $20 a day. That's unheard of. Usually it's about $5 a day. Across a lot of commodities, a lot of traders have retreated. Now, why is that happening? Well, the traders and the brokers have to deposit cash and securities. It's called a margin on a regular basis to cover potential losses in their positions. If the market moves against those positions, they receive a margin call requesting further funds. And if they fail to pay, they can be forced to close their positions. That spike in nickel, for example, left some brokers struggling to pay margin calls because their short positions went against them. The result is in some commodities like oil and gas oil, exchanges have raised margins recently. And it's not just commodities. Traders were surprised when stock index giants MSCI and FTSE Russell announced that Russian stocks in their indexes would be removed and their value would be set to zero. The NYSE was eventually forced to halt trading in ETFs that trade Russian stocks as well. So uh, the good news and bad news here, on the one hand, the ability for market participants to quickly change the rules overall, it sounds startling, but when the circumstances change, they have to change the rules. And it highlights the strength of the U.S. system, the overall U.S. trading system. It's very, very flexible. On the other hand, the traders in those systems can get very easily burned when they trade, when they change the rules as they have had in equities and in commodities in the last week and a half. Kelly, back to you. Uh, do you know to what extent, you know, trades are being canceled, Bob, or if anything that's happening here is a departure from what we've seen in the past? Well, trades being canceled is, is different. We're still looking at what's going on in that situation. But a lot of traders have lost a lot of money recently. Now, part of the problem is there's a lot of what we call tourists in the commodity space right now. There's a lot of speculative traders who've never been in this space much before. And when they get burned, they pull back. So the open positions have dropped dramatically because so many people have gotten burned and there's been margins calls. People had to come up with with more money or had to close their positions. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is look how remarkably flexible the U.S. trading system is. This is what you should do. You trade commodities on margins. If things get crazy, they increase the margins. You have to come up with more money. But people also get burned. So, okay, this is a good feature of the system. It's flexible. It moves. When things get tougher, they they contract and and trading contracts overall. On the other hand, there's a lot of people that kind of get burned. There's an ongoing debate about this. There's some people who want stricter margins and and not such craziness and moving them around. But I frankly, in these situations, see it as a sign of strength. And remember, it is capitalism and you can lose money trading futures contracts very easily. 
a lot of reminders of the downside of trading these markets lately. Bob, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Our Bob Pisani. Coming up, one market veteran says it's not whether the consumer will spend. It's about where they will spend now. Americans are about to shift their spending in a big way again. And we've got the portfolio plays for that. Plus, Democratic lawmakers unveiling a new plan to tax what they call excess profits of oil companies in an effort to offer rebates to consumers. Energy stocks are up 40% this year, but the leading energy ETF is still 20% below its all-time highs from 2014. We'll look at what a windfall tax would mean. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. The Dow is the only major average still in positive territory by 57 points. The S&P is down 12. The Nasdaq's down 138. And we've given up big gains from earlier, by the way. The Dow is up 341 at the highs. We're back in a moment. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Quick news alert out of the energy market. The U.S. energy firms added oil and gas rigs for the ninth time in the past 10 weeks as crude's been surging to 13-year highs. Baker Hughes' latest rig count indicator of future output rose to 633 this week. It's the highest in nearly two years, though well down from the highs we saw pre-pandemic. U.S. crude traded over $130 earlier this week, of course, and that was the highest mark since July 2008. WTI just under 109 today. Now, President Biden, along with U.S allies just announced new economic measures against Vladimir Putin and Russia today. Even as uh, politicians are struggling to offset the pain that surging gas and food prices are already causing for U.S. consumers. Joining us now with the latest D.C. developments, Elon Moy is covering the Democrats' newest effort to reduce pain at the pump. But first, let's get to Kayla Tausche at the White House for the details on the White House's latest move. Kayla? Kelly, President Biden announcing a new slate of economic actions to ramp up pressure on Russia's economy, which despite the pain of recent weeks, has not deterred President Putin in Ukraine. The U.S. will now be moving to cut off funding for Russia at the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, ban the import of Russian vodka, diamonds and seafood, and along with G7 allies, revoke the special trade status that allows tariff-free trade. Biden today told congressional Democrats who wanted to do this sooner that he didn't want the U.S. to go it alone. More important than us moving when we want to is making sure all of NATO is together, is together. They have different vulnerabilities than we do, just like in the oil embargo. A lot of them could not. The only way I was it took, I think, you know, weeks to work out. Biden there in Philadelphia speaking to Democrats also commented on the closure of the Russian stock market and said in his words, when it reopens, it will blow up. As the U.S. warns of possible chemical weapons used by Russia, the investigation into possible war crimes continues. 
Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates told reporters today, quote, there are strong indications that this is occurring and, and that the heinous way Russia is prosecuting this war will result in war crimes. In Romania, Vice President Kamala Harris today said she sees no signs Vladimir Putin is interested in diplomacy, identifying no change in posture since the invasion began. And of course, yesterday, Kelly, uh, we did see the top diplomats from both Russia and Ukraine after multiple hours of talking say there was no interest in a ceasefire. Kelly. Kayla, again, going back to the issue of chemical weapons, which we keep hearing about, so you have to imagine there's some intelligence backing this, but we're not hearing what the consequences would be. Is that to suggest that there won't be any specific consequences or that they just want to prepare the Ukrainians for this? Or that, I mean, we've already thrown to the point that Biden was just announcing today so much at the Russians. What else is left at this point? Well, Kelly, on the topic of chemical weapons, one of the reasons why you haven't seen the U.S. Uh, go out and say exactly what would happen is because there's a little bit of heartburn over comments that President Obama made regarding Syria several right. years ago when he said that the use of chemical weapons there would be a red line. And then the U.S. did not end up taking uh, as harsh action there as many thought was deserved in that scenario. So the White House doesn't want to get over its skis here. And anything it would do in response, it would want to make sure that allies are on board with in keeping with the way that it's approached this entire situation. And it's unclear that there's agreement on exactly how to respond in that case. But to that end, Kelly, just a couple hours ago, Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, did start tweeting about possible chemical attacks, though Russia is blaming them on Ukraine. All right, Kayla, thank you very much. As always, Kayla Tausche in Washington. So is Elon Moy. Let's turn now to the new tax on oil companies that's being proposed by a group of Democrats in both chambers of Congress. Elon, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, President Biden has also warned oil companies against gouging consumers during this crisis. Now Democrats are out with a new bill to make sure that that doesn't happen. The big oil windfall profits tax targets companies like Chevron, Shell, BP, EOG, Exxon, and Occidental that produce or import more than 300,000 barrels a day. It calculates the difference between current oil prices and pre-pandemic prices and splits it in a half. That amount would then be imposed as a new quarterly excise tax on every barrel of oil, and the money would be returned to consumers as a rebate. So if oil were $120 a barrel, Democrats estimate this would raise $45 billion a year and send $360 back to families. There is no reason that they should be making billions of dollars while working class Americans are paying five, six bucks at the pump, uh, 50, 7,500 bucks to fill up their tank. Uh, they need to be taxed for these excessive profits. And if they don't make these excessive profits, then they can easily uh, lower the price at the pump. Now, Congressman Ro Khanna is one of the lead sponsors of this bill. He told me he's also open to a gas tax holiday. But Kelly, he said this plan is targeted to low and middle income households and would also end up saving consumers more money. Back to you. You know, it's an idea I've sort of floated over the months. But if the idea is to benefit from how well oil companies are doing right now, why not just hold the shares, given that these companies are trying to return the cash flows that they can back to shareholders. So we've seen, it's just an irony, we're seeing this divestment from pension funds and others from big oil, while at the same time acknowledgement that big oil is where those cash flows are going and they could just recycle the cash flows back to consumers. I just, I, I don't know what that structure would look like, 
Um, but it, this what? just feels like, you know, imposing a tax. We all know what happens when you tax something. You usually tend to get less of it. Right. And that's sort of one of the arguments here is that this would have actually the opposite effect, which would be to raise prices because companies would then be disincentive to invest in production. Kana says that that's not the case, that actually the way to avoid the tax is to make more, produce more oil so that you don't have to pay the difference in the prices between what they are now and what it was pre-pandemic. He says they were making a lot of money pre-pandemic and nobody was complaining back then. I'm a lot of money pre-pandemic. We had the complete blow up of the shale bubble. I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy, we really appreciate it. All right. Speaking of ways to help American consumers deal with energy prices, my next guest runs the country's largest natural gas distribution network and says America has the supply to become energy independent, but the lack of infrastructure means a long road ahead. Joining me now is Marion Brown. She's president of SoCal Gas. They're part of Semper Energy, whose shares are trading just off their all-time high. Marion, it's great to see you. So what is the the infrastructure headwind that you're facing right now? Well, I think that what we see, Kelly, and great to be on the show, is um, a, a significant amount of potential resource in renewable electricity as well as renewable gas and um, as well as traditional natural gas. And so the supply and the resource is there. And where we want to work with government is in infrastructure investment. And we saw um, a movement in that direction with the enactment of the bipartisan infrastructure package that included those kinds of policies, including supporting um, uh, investment in hydrogen infrastructure that we at SoCal Gas are very keen on. So just explain to me what the infrastructure need is, you know, as, as sort of specific as you can be. How would that affect Southern California households' ability to get their gas more cheaply? Well, I would say in the in the near term, in the short term, what our customers are experiencing is driven by supply and dyna uh, demand dynamics. And specifically in the natural gas space, um, we saw we've been seeing natural gas prices higher even before the crisis in Ukraine. And um, we are incentivized to help our customers to reduce their demand. And that helps with bills. By that, I mean the price of the, the commodity for us is a pass-through to our customers. So the kinds of tools that we use are weatherization and energy efficiency, um, as well as uh, support on their bills. But in the long term, we think that there needs to be investment in infrastructure to support um, renewable gases like renewable natural gas and hydrogen infrastructure. And in fact, we announced a proposal two weeks ago to build a, the country's largest green hydrogen infrastructure proposal. And we think that that's supported um, by the hydrogen hub initiatives that they have in Washington, D.C. And you think that would bring bills down for households? It will bring supply and increasingly cleaner supply um, as we transition to um, cleaner and cleaner energy as we move forward in the clean energy transition. Understood. Miriam, great to have you here today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Miriam Brown of SoCal Gas. Still ahead, why Oracle's earnings report could be flashing a warning sign for the tech sector. We'll talk about what was in there that has people talking. Plus, it's been a very rough week for Chinese stocks. Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu and Tencent all dropping more than 11%. We'll look at why, what's ahead, and if these stocks should be a buy. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Pretty evenly split, about two to one gains outnumbering decliners here. JP Morgan, the worst performer right now. We're back in a moment. The market doesn't joke around. 
So why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here's a quick look at the markets. Dow's hanging on to a 100-point gain, but we're well off the highs when we were up 341. It's the only one positive right now. S&P down four, the Nasdaq's down 106. In terms of sectors for the week, energy is once again the only one closing in the green. You can see it up about 3%. Consumer staples technology shedding between 2 and 4%. And here are some of the movers this hour. DocuSign sinking after that very weak first quarter and full-year revenue guidance. The stock down more than 50% this year, tracking for its worst quarter on record. It's down almost 23% today. Deer moving higher after Wells Fargo initiated the company with an overweight, saying Deer is a category leader. The stock has outperformed the broader market up 13% as ag prices rise this year. And shares of Etsy are the worst performer in the S&P right now. Checking in, they're down almost 10% today, down about 19% this week. Among the reasons, Deutsche initiating the stock at a hold, saying churn dynamics will weigh on future numbers. But again, we've seen a lot of these pandemic beneficiaries like DocuSign and Etsy coming back to earth. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Texas abortion clinics losing again in a case before the state's highest court. The ruling now paves the way for the nation's toughest abortion law to remain in place. Also lowers the chance of even pausing the restrictions anytime soon. The United Nations Human Rights Office has received, quote, credible reports that Russian forces are using cluster munitions to strike populated areas. Such attacks are banned under international humanitarian law. A U.N. official says that most of the civilian casualties in Ukraine are caused by explosive weapons with wide impact areas. And nuclear talks with Iran are on hold. This after Russia has demanded relief from sanctions imposed over its invasion of Ukraine. British and France envoys say that a deal is on the table, but that it could unravel within days if external factors are not resolved. And on the news tonight, how part of Detroit actually turned to solar power after the local utility company repossessed its streetlights. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, certainly not a tease that you hear often. No, that is not. That is not. I look forward to that, Rahel. Thank you. Coming up, it hasn't been a pretty week or month or year, really, for the EV stocks. Names like Rivian, Nikola, Lucid, all down more than 39% since Jan 1. Will it leave a permanent bad taste in investors' mouths? Plus, our market guest says fade the negativity and buy the franchises where customers will keep spending their money. It's all coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. All three major averages are down for the week, with the Nasdaq the worst performer. But interestingly, it's not tech. It's consumer staples. That's the single worst performing sector. Take a look at these names. ConAgra sinking more than 11 percent. 
Campbell's Soup, General Mills, Coca-Cola, all down about 7%. But my next guest likes one of the food names, at least a food distributor, and he's putting money to work with companies he says will benefit from a shift in consumer spending. Joining me now is Brian Barish. He's Chief Investment Officer at Cambiar Investors. Also with us is Gina Sanchez, Chief Market Strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Brian, I'll start with you and uh, tell me who excites you these days. Well, look, you're you're starting to get a lot of stocks on fire sale, and uh, it's it's not totally dissimilar to what happened exactly two years ago this time, where we have an event that looks binary and it looks like it's going to really uh, disturb earnings. But you have to ask yourself exactly how long is this really going to last? So. Uh, you know, the, the, the offset is the market did start the year at expensive levels. So we think leaning in to some really top quality consumer facing franchises is probably a good idea. We, yeah. we understand short term could be choppy. Well, to that point, Cisco, the food distributor, not the tech company, is, is one that we don't see come up often. Why does that one jump out to you right now? Uh, the food distributors have surprisingly positive benefits from this kind of food price inflation. They tend to get operating leverage from the inflation in the overall price of the commodities, and they're able to you know, essentially offset uh, increases here with decreases there and, and, and basically make something positive out of the, the situation. Plus, they have leverage to reopening, which is still going on. Gina, I want to bring you in because one of your big bets has actually been on Latin America, which we've started to hear more and more about. Brazil, the top performing market, I think, uh, in real terms this year. Why Latin America do you feel safe putting capital to work right now? So when we put the bet on in Latin America, it was it was before the invasion of the Ukraine. And the, the general premise was that, you know, emerging markets were the last to get vaccine availability. They would naturally be the last to reopen and experience that GDP boost um, that we have been experiencing in the U.S. and in developed countries. And so it made sense that that would be the next. And it's also incredibly cheap on a valuation basis. And valuation does matter right now. But then as the invasion of Ukraine happened, it was an enormous commodity switching story. But it really goes well beyond that, because if you look, for example, at the disruption that occurred during the pandemic, uh, the disruption in supply chains really made us question, do we really believe in this last mile delivery or should we start onshoring and nearshoring? And that nearshoring play hugely benefits Latin America. That's a great point. Supply chains kind of being reworked all across the board. Uh, Brian, let me turn back to you. So we talked about Cisco, food distributors, some of the dynamics there. But your other names, Adidas, definitely a little more discretionary. Be curious about that one. You also like UPS and Amazon, speaking of distribution. But why Adidas at a time like this? Um, We think the athleisure trend is going to endure. And if you really think about it, Adidas and Nike have been a natural duopoly in athletic wear for you know basically the last 30 uh, plus years uh, nike and adidas tend to trade normally in a relationship to each other and just due to the panic in europe adidas is now at about one half of the multiple of nike which is about as wide of a discount as i've ever seen so we, we rather like that one here all right and i mentioned a couple of your other plays here ups you say they finally figured out pricing amazon which has uh doing a big stock split and has been a, a under pressure this year. Gina, what about U.S. equities more broadly? What would you say to people who are worried about the turbulence we could still be facing in the months to come? 
Well, so here's what we really kind of focus on. If you look at all the conflicts, the major global conflicts that have occurred since 1947, most of them, with, the, with a few exceptions, were buying opportunities. The biggest exception was the Yom Kippur War, and that is where you had an oil embargo that pushed oil prices up at a time when inflation momentum was already building. And that's what's interesting about that comparison to today. And so what really sealed that deal was Fed response. The Fed was very aggressive. And I think all eyes right now are on, are on the Fed. So whether or not this turns out to be a buying opportunity is going to be highly dependent on how the Fed reacts uh, to the inflation mounting and the impact that oil is having. And so we're really looking at that as our signal for how we continue to play this. Brian, quick last word. Yeah, I, look, I think this could be a messy situation for a while, um, and I don't know how it's going to be resolved. But, uh, you know, I don't think Russian commodities, which is essentially the fear in the market that they won't be available, you'll have a commodity price explosion. I don't think they're going to fail to find their way onto global markets. So uh, it may be messy for a little while, but I would fade that negativity and just think about buying top quality franchises on sale. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank, thank you both. Brian Barish, Gina Thanks Sanchez on these markets today. Still ahead, Chinese Internet stocks getting slammed this week. Alibaba sinking more than 12 percent to a 52 week low. Baidu down 18 percent. JD dropping 23 percent. The renewed hurdles facing these companies and whether they could be delisted from U.S. exchanges. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Chinese tech stocks collapsing on fears they'll be delisted in the U.S. Alibaba, Baidu, JD and Tencent all falling more than 4% today, adding to their already 11% declines this week. Shares of Didi, which you can see up there, below $2 a share this morning. The Crane Shares China Internet ETF taking a hit as well, dropping 17% in the past week, uh, 8% today. Joining me now is Brendan Ahern. He is the chief investment officer. Brendan, I mean, it's just been going from bad to worse. And this is at a time when the macro guests on China have been saying they're turning a quarter. The tech crackdown is over. This is the time to get in. I mean, you can at least feel comfortable maybe buying alongside Charlie Munger. But this seems to have come out of nowhere. Well, it, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that that, you know, since the passage and signing of the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, uh, we at Crane Shares have taken this very deadly serious uh, we've started to convert. We've moved KWeb. We've moved uh, a significant portion of our U.S. ADRs, converted them into the Hong Kong share classes in, in anticipation that the SEC will fulfill its obligation as the enforcement agent for the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. And clearly there's market participants who haven't taken that very seriously or were unaware of it are unaware of ADR conversion. And so we're seeing this horrific, indiscriminate selling of, of U.S.-listed Chinese ADRs on the specter of ADR delisting in 2024. Right, but and you had been, you guys have been doing this for some time, haven't you? I thought we discussed this for a long time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, you, know, oh, you know, since since this, when this was a bill, uh, we've been spending a lot of time on protecting as, protecting our shareholders. And so, you know, a year ago, Kelly, uh, K-Web was only 25% Hong Kong. Today, it's 66% Hong Kong. And by the end of this year, if not significantly sooner, we will have completely removed U.S. ADRs out of K-Web. And we, we highly recommend investors 
find out about ADR conversion, about doing this transition that we've been doing on behalf of our shareholders in KWeb. Sure. I guess the reason why I just want to scratch a little below the surface here is this was a known known to you. It's about converting, okay, from US ADRs to Hong Kong. Fine. So why is the Hong Kong market itself doing so poorly right now? The Hong Kong market is at a five-year low. We've seen what's happening with COVID cases in Hong Kong, and now there's some concerns about that having similar effect in China. I guess my point is I'm just not totally convinced that this indiscriminate selling is, it may be catalyzed by this issue, but it doesn't seem to be fully explaining the behavior of Hong Kong and Chinese stocks right now. Well, we've seen a significant disparity over the last year between the fundamentals of the companies and the price action. And so so foreign investors who really reflect their opinion of China and China's economy through Hong Kong and U.S. shares have been very negative. We can contrast that with what what do investors in China think about China? So the Shanghai and Shenzhen composite were up nine and 13 percent last year. So you have this incredible disparity between what the Chinese think about China and what foreigners think about China. And so so some of this, you know, it could be U.S. China political relations. It could be China Internet regulation. It could be tax loss selling in the individual names, as we saw in November and December. The culmination, the sum of all fears, is really reflected in the U.S. and Hong Kong names. We can contrast that with the A-share market, the Shanghai, Shenzhen. If you just do KBA versus KWeb, you can see that disparity. Sure, and absolutely that that's going on. Would you say, though, that there's no larger macro concern here as it relates to what's about to happen with the Hong Kong or Chinese economy? Well, we think you know China's economy is getting ready to ease as the yeah. world is on the precipice of tightening. So, so I think I think this is a little bit like listen. I, we could argue all day why why China's these why people should be buyers and not sellers, but but the price action is what it is. There's certainly behind the scenes. If you do some homework, you'd see that China is is easing monetarily, fiscal support, um, and I think they you know hopefully you know I think China has a real strong incentive to helping find a peaceful resolution in Hong Kong due to their importation of Ukrainian wheat and certainly natural resources on on the Russia side. Quick final question. Why does a name like Tencent jump out to you as one that's oversold here? Well, certainly investors in mainland China, they've been buyers of Tencent. We can track that through uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, through the Southbound Stock Connect. They've been buyers of Tencent stock over the last two weeks on this on this weakness. And if they're buyers, that's usually a, a very good sign. They're buying Tencent, Meduan, and Kwashu, those three in particular today. All right. Brendan, thank you for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Brendan Ahern with Crane Shares. Still ahead, the EV stocks are sinking today after Rivian reported that wider-than-expected loss and warned about a bunch of headwinds. But wasn't the sector supposed to be a big winner from high gasoline prices? We'll dig into that. And before we head to break, here's a look at the biggest winners this week on the NASDAQ 100. Cyber is the theme. CrowdStrike, the leader, followed by Seedren and AstraZeneca. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Rivian shares down almost 8% today after those disappointing results and guidance. It's not the only EV startup struggling this year. It's down about 64% since Jan 1, while Lordstown's down 37% and Fisker's down about 31%. And if high gasoline prices aren't a catalyst for outperformance here, what is? Let's bring in Phil LeBeau with more. Phil? Kelly, come with me in the Wayback Machine, and I'm going to take you to November 15th of last year, just five days after the Rivian IPO. This is what we saw. 
the, all of the EV stocks, and I'm talking about the startups here. We're talking about uh, Rivian, Fisker, Lucid. They were all at record highs. What's happened since then? Not a lot. And here's why. These guys have run into a, a trio of challenges here. You've got lower production guides. They've brought them down, certainly for Rivian as well as for Lucid. Supply chain woes. Slower sales growth is anticipated. All of this coming at the same time as the expected growth of EVs over the next couple of years has made people say, okay, yeah, I do think that these guys or EV sales are going to grow. But you know what? Who's going to get most of the EV sales through 2025 as the industry moves up to about 2 million in annual sales? Look at this. You've got Tesla, GM, and Ford. They are expected to get the majority of the sales, not Fisker, Lucid, and Rivian. And the other thing to keep in mind is that they're all ramping up production. They're ramping up production with new plants for GM and Ford. And in the case of Tesla, they've got the Texas Gigafactory coming online. Bottom line is this, Kelly, while there is a lot of anticipation that we will see much greater growth for electric vehicles over the next decade or two decades, the startups are finding out just how difficult it is to ramp up production. High gas prices or not, that's the issue here. It is not the fact that high gas prices might help them with sales. Look, if, it's, if we have high gas prices a year from now, maybe. But for right now, it's all about ramping production. Yeah, it's almost like they don't want any more sales right now. In other words, I mean, I think the issue, Phil, as well, is just the the high IPO market valuation. It's more of a curse than a blessing. If you go public like Rivian at a $100 billion valuation, what is left to grow into? Right. Well, that that's a good point. But keep in mind, when all of that was happening... I heard nobody, not a single person in the auto industry or on Wall Street who said, yeah, this valuation makes sense. Right. It was complete froth, completely over the top, not just with Rivian, but also with Lucid. And I've heard the same thing with a number of these EV startups. The retail investor, not alone, but a lot of the retail investors, I've had them stop me and say, I'm really interested in this particular company. They're going to do great. And I would always say, and not always, but a lot of times I'll say, well, do they have a vehicle out yet? When's their sales going to start? And that's not been in the question for a lot of investors over the last year. I think that reality has set in. No, it's true. And again, the, a lot of the vehicles are beautiful. That is not the issue. The retail interest, like you said, in a way is not the issue. It's just the size of these companies is a lot to contend with. Uh, and we are in that contention phase right now. Phil, thank yeah. you so much. We appreciate it. Our Phil with the latest there. Now, a quick programming note. The president of Blink Charging will join us on Power Lunch. They had earnings as well. We'll talk about those results and the impact of the energy price spike with Brendan Jones. Don't miss it. Now, Ukraine's two leading neon suppliers, which produce nearly half of the world's supply, have halted their operations. That means more pressure on semiconductor manufacturing as the squeeze on their supply of this rare critical gas worsens. The majority of U.S. neon supply comes from Ukraine and those two major Ukrainian producers that just shut down. It casts a cloud across uh, chip production as semiconductor grade neon has specifications to avoid contamination or chip failure. It's not that easy to just switch producers. Uh, you can see some of the major chip makers down in the market today. CJ Muse from Evercore is saying that several chip firms have been preparing ASML. Uh, he says is one example. Those, those shares are still lower today. They have at least 12 months supply, according to him. United Microelectronics, based in Taiwan, also says they have access to alternative supplies. The neon market is tiny in scale. We're talking about $50 million a year. So that won't be a huge profit margin issue, just an actual supply issue for some of these chip makers. 
After Crimea's annexation in 2014, chip suppliers took precautions to diversify. They get less of their supply from Ukraine now than they did 10 years ago, uh, which could help to lessen the blow in the near term. But Neon, another material to watch for its uh, ripple effects here. Still ahead, Oracle's earnings revealed what could be a huge red flag for the tech sector. We have that next. And there's a new CNBC afternoon lineup starting Monday. Sarah Eisen hosting Closing Bell at 3 p.m. Eastern. Scott Wabner's new show, Closing Bell Overtime, at 4 p.m. I've got it all DVR'd. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Oracle are down today after taking a big hit in yesterday's extended trade on their earnings report. But it wasn't the quarterly numbers that raised red flags. Let's bring in CNBC.com's Ari Levy with what he says is Oracle's warning sign for tech. Ari? Yeah, Kelly. So, you know, Oracle uh, has invested about $625 million combined into two companies, Oxford Nanopore, a uh, gene sequencing company, <clears throat> and Ampere Computing, which makes server chips. Um, because of the, the battering that growth stocks have taken across the board, Oxford had to take, uh, sorry, Oracle had to take a substantial markdown on those investments. Um, and if you look across the tech sector, whether it's Amazon, Microsoft, Google, or Salesforce, they've all made really big investments in, in growth companies, startups, late stage companies over the last few years. Some of those companies have gone public. Some of them are still private, um, but they're all going to have to be taking markdowns. Uh, you know, and we'll see uh, the, the, the heart of earnings season late April. Uh, but it's something that investors really have to be on the lookout for. Oracle is a, a relatively small investor in uh, in the tech space relative to those companies. Yeah, because the shares are still up today, suggesting investors are taking this in stride. But to your point, if they're a smaller player and some of the other ones are quite large, who in particular should we be keeping an eye on? Yeah, well, Amazon is a, is a notable one. And you know, it, it just so happens that Rivian also reported yesterday uh, if you remember, Amazon invested about $1.3 billion into Rivian, True. Uh, of course, an electric vehicle company. Uh, the stock soared uh, you know, last year after Rivian's IPO. And so Amazon was able to take a large mark up for the fourth quarter. Uh, the stock is now down over 60% this year. So what gets marked up has to get marked down, right? Uh, Amazon has other investments in companies like Databricks, uh, which was valued at $38 billion during kind of the peak of the private market hype, uh, OpenAI. Uh, Microsoft is in, in a couple of those companies, as well as Cruise. Uh, Google is in several companies. Um, Freshworks, Duolingo, UiPath, those company, those stocks are all getting hammered. And then Salesforce uh, put $150 million into Robinhood's IPO. That stock is down 37% this year. So hmm. all, all significant companies to look out for. And if they're interested in the businesses, now would now would be the time to maybe look at acquisitions or doubling down or, you know, but they seem to have bought more or less uh, towards the top along with everybody else. It's a great point. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ari Levy with CNBC.com. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. 